I appreciate the musicians today. The full band on uh, first Sunday of the month is, is enjoyable. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story. Actually, it's uh, the story of Jonah the prophet. Now, although Jonah is one of the minor prophets, which means his uh, prophecy is short, and although if pressed later in the service when I ask you to open to Jonah, you might find difficulty in finding it there, it is curious that Jonah is a book that we all know the story about. When we think about Jonah, we know of uh, the ship, we know of Tarshish, we think of the, the fish, and it's even the children who know the story well. Jonah is often told in a children's church, Sunday school is a great story to tell, and thanks to Veggie Tales, Jonah especially is, is well known. How many of you have seen the Veggie Tales? Most of you. Those of you with um, older children haven't quite seen it yet, uh, but sometime you will. And so you kids, as I tell this story about Jonah, you will see and be familiar with uh, many of the the details of the story, but some of the things are different. Like, for instance, the Ninevites aren't fish slappers, all right? And uh, Khalil didn't exist. There was a worm, but it wasn't Khalil, um, and he didn't talk. And you might find some things otherwise that are different. But otherwise, I, I think that you will follow the story pretty well. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man prayed to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Then Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the sailors became extremely frightened. And they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and they said, 
please, Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars were around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God, earnest, uh, let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. 
There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant, which did not work, and which did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand, as well as many animals? And there it ends. I quoted that to my family, and as I said, that's it. He stops just talking about animals in a question? Well, it does leave us hanging. It concludes with this question. Verse 10. Jonah, you had compassion upon this plant. You didn't work for it at all. You did nothing for this plant. And yet, should I, God, not have compassion upon people who repent of their sins? And the question comes with no answer. And if I would ask you that question, should God have compassion on people who repent of their sins? What would we say? I think we'd say yes. Should God have had compassion on Nineveh who turned from their wicked ways? What would we say? We would say yes. Sure, they were wicked people, but they repented. Sure, they deserved judgment, but they turned from their wicked ways. Isn't this how God always works when Whenever people turn from their sins, doesn't He forgive them? Listen to Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. At one moment, God says, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it. That's just how God is. When people repent, God always forgives. He never refuses to forgive any who repent. Why should we object at all to the Lord having compassion on Nineveh? I mean, for us it's easy. And yet for Jonah it was difficult. And it has to do with who the Ninevites were when Jonah lived. Nineveh was the, was the central capital of Assyria. To us, Assyria is this ancient civilization that just fades into oblivion. But to Jonah, the Assyrians were alive and well. They were the enemies of Israel for years. Israel lived under the threat of the Syrian domination and occupation. And so in order to thwart that for years, the Israelite kings would pay tribute to the king of Nineveh, to the Assyrians, so that they wouldn't attack them, right? Just tax them really high, and so then they won't attack. It's like a protection tax is what they had. In God's providence during the days of Jonah, Israel had a, a measure of strength and weren't paying that tribute during those days. It meant that Jeroboam II, who reigned in Israel from 793 to 753, he didn't pay tribute to them. In fact, during the days of, of, jo- of Jonah, Israel enlarged their borders, temporarily turning back the Assyrian army. 
according to 2 Kings 14.25, which speaks about Jonah. Jonah was the major prophet to predict and prophesy that this would take place. And it did. In many ways, Jonah was a local Israelite prophetic hero. He prophesied that things would go well with Israel, and things did go well, at least politically, for Israel. But that didn't mean that the threat of the Assyrian domination was over. No, the success wasn't long-lived. Within 30 years after the reign of Jeroboam, Assyria came and destroyed the nation of Israel. So the threat is there. The threat is looming. During the days of Jonah, Nineveh was still very much a threat. And Jonah's heart was, had a deep-seated hatred for the Ninevites. Jonah wanted nothing more than to see them destroyed and wiped off the face of the planet. And so when the question comes in verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand as well as many animals? It was hard for Jonah to respond. He couldn't stand the thought of thinking about his enemies receiving mercy from the hand of the Lord. They were wicked. They had oppressed Israel for years. They deserved to be destroyed. And yet God, showing them mercy, it was too much for Jonah. Jonah couldn't handle it. When God was merciful to Nineveh, I think Jonah was sick to his stomach. But further than that, it's interesting that Jonah wanted to die. Things were so bad in his gut that he wanted to die. If you look in chapter 4, verse 3, he mentions about how, please, Lord, take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He says in verse 8 that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying death is better to me than life. He said in verse 9 that I have good reason to be angry even to death. He was fuming mad and he wanted to die instead. So why was Jonah so angry? Why would Jonah want to die? Here's the key. He didn't love mercy. Jonah did not love mercy. In fact, the book of Jonah is all about mercy. Chapter 1, Jonah, we see him fleeing from God, fleeing from bringing mercy to the Ninevites and God pursuing Jonah for the sake of mercy. In chapter 2, we see Jonah receiving mercy. I mean, he's in the, the stomach of the fish. Very easily could have died. But God showed him mercy. In chapter 3, we see the Ninevites receiving mercy. And in chapter 4, we see Jonah hating mercy. As it culminates right down here in chapter 4, verse 11. Mercy is the question here in verse 11. Shouldn't I have compassion? Shouldn't I be merciful on Nineveh? In recent days, we've picked up themes of books we've studied through. First Peter, suffer now, glory later. Second Peter, know and grow. What's the theme of Jonah? Do you love mercy? I thought it very appropriate in light of chapter 4, verse 11 to phrase the theme of Jonah in a question because that's how it ends. Do you love mercy? Now, I'm not asking you this morning whether you like the mercy of God. I'm asking you this morning if you love the mercy of God. I'm not asking you whether you love the mercy of God for yourself. I'm asking you whether you love the mercy of God for others. I'm not asking whether you love the mercy of God for your friends. I'm talking about whether you love the mercy of God on your enemies. That's what Jonah asks us. That's the question we'll ask for four weeks. Do you find great pleasure when God shows mercy to people, even your greatest enemies. See, it's easy for us to love the mercy of God when it comes on us, right? 
I mean, we are people who love the mercy of God. That is the message of the cross of Christ. It's God's mercy and kindness to us. Now, it's more than that, but it is that. That we know Christ has, has come to us, the cross, and we who deserve God's anger and wrath actually receive kindness instead. We don't receive His wrath, and that is mercy. God has been gracious to us in Christ. That's the message of Rock Valley Bible Church. The reason we gather week in, week out is because of Jesus Christ and what He has done for our souls. His blood has washed away our sin. And we believe it by faith and we rejoice in it. And if today finds you here this morning not believing in the cross of Christ, well, I encourage you today to turn and repent and believe and call upon God and experience the mercy of God in your life. And when you experience the mercy of God in your life, you can boast of nothing else except the mercy of God. And you will find it incredibly easy to delight in Jesus Christ. The songs we sing will flow from your lips when you understand the mercy of God. We love the mercy of God when it comes upon us. Jonah loved the mercy of God when it came upon him, which we'll see in chapter 2. But do you love the mercy of God when it comes upon others? Now, when it comes upon our friends, it's easy. A family member, it's easy. But what about God's mercy on your enemies? What about God's mercy upon those who have hurt you? What about God's mercy upon those who swindled money from you? What about God's mercy on those who have maybe physically abused you, perhaps a child? What about God's mercy upon those who have sought to bring you down, who have spoken harsh words to you and basically are your enemies? What about God's mercy upon them? Do you love mercy enough that nothing would give you more pleasure than seeing the Lord being merciful to your enemies so they are forgiven and made righteous in Christ's sight and receiving the benefits of the kingdom? despite what they've done to you? That's the message of Jonah. Jesus said it this way, love your enemies. And Jonah says, are you merciful? Do you love mercy, God's mercy upon your enemies? Do you love God's mercy enough that you give all you have to see God being merciful to your fiercest of foes? Well, in chapter 1, we're going to see God's love for mercy. He loves mercy so hard that He pursues it, and He pursues it hard. That's my message title this morning, God Pursues Mercy. So we see in chapter 1. Technically, God isn't pursuing mercy, He's pursuing Jonah. However, when you pursue Jonah, Jonah was the one who was the path which God had chosen to show mercy in Nineveh, then any pursuit of Jonah is really a pursuit of His mercy. God pursues mercy. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Jonah if you haven't. So far, if you have trouble finding it, you've got table of contents in your Bible. If you just hit the minor prophets someplace after Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, that kind of puts you right in there. You can kind of search through them and find them. I know for me, I've got to kind of go through that. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, where am I? And I've got to find it. Cause it's, only, it's only two pages, and I can easily miss it. But it's packed with a story, right? My first point this morning in God pursuing mercy is Jonah's flight. Verses 1 through 3, we find Jonah running away. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. As I said earlier, Jonah was a, a local prophetic hero to the people of Israel. He prophesied that Israel was going to have a measure of success against his enemies, and his prophecy came true. 
I, I imagine that he was heralded and loved in Israel. But God was calling him now to preach to the Ninevites. God was calling him to be not a local prophet, but he was calling him to be a missionary. And, and not a missionary to anywhere, a missionary to his enemies, a, a missionary to wicked people. In fact, that's what verse 2 says. Their wickedness has come up before me. Now, it's not that God had this special insight into the wickedness of the Ninevites that just came up before him and nobody else knew about the wickedness of the Ninevites. Oh, Nineveh is known far and wide for their cruelty. Archaeologists have discovered writings of the kings of Assyria describing their cruelty in war. One of the kings, his name is Ashurn Asurpal. Okay? What a name to name your son. Asher and Asurpal. He boasted some hundred years before Jonah was around. He said, I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off and I formed it into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Ruthless warriors. Shalmaneser II, a few years later, described his cruelties like this. A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burn up in the flames. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cut string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of the gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. Their hands I cut off. Ash Urban Ipal, who reigned later, a Syrian king, he says, I, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. He's got a rope between his underneath here. Sitting in a kennel, dirty with dogs. This man also boasted the Egyptian corpses he hung on stakes, stripped their skins off, and covered the city wall with the skins of the men he captured. On top of that, these men were arrogant. Arrogant. Again, Asher Urban Ipal said, I am Asher Urban Ipal. He's boasting in his name. Asher Urban Ipal, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria. The great gods magnified my name and they made my rule powerful. Or Asher Haddon. It was even more boastful. I'm powerful. I'm all-powerful. I am hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. The chosen one of Asher, Nabu, and Marduk. Arrogant. Boastful. On top of that, idolatry was rampant in Assyria. Immorality was rampant little amazement that Nahum identifies Nineveh in all their sin, calling them at one point the bloody city. Without doubt, Nineveh was a wicked city. In chapter 3, verse 8, you can read it there, that the king of Nineveh acknowledged the wickedness of their own city. He said, let men turn from the violence which is in their hands. And there's violence around in the city. All Israel was aware of their wickedness. They'd heard about their violence and they were scared of these enemies coming and conquering them. Jonah was aware of their wickedness and God was aware of their wickedness. Verse 2 says, Their wickedness has come up before me. But it was to these people that Jonah was called to preach, but he did not want to go. 
So Jonas, it says in verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee. That's not commending of Jonah. Right? When someone says, arise and go, and you say, but I fled, it's not a good sign. It's what Jonah did. He He fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which is going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Rather than obeying the Lord and going to Nineveh to cry against them, he rose up to flee to Tarshish. Now, we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but most scholars think that the best guess is the southern tip of Spain, some 2,000 miles west. To get to Tarshish, you've got to go to the sea, near the Mediterranean Sea. Joppa was upon the seacoast. That's why he went there. He found a ship, and then he set sail for 2,000 miles away rather than to go this way and up a little north up to Nineveh. Jonah could hardly have gone in the most exact opposite direction. His travel plans were making a statement with his heart that he was going to obey the Lord. He was not going to travel to Nineveh by land. He was going by sea to Tarshish. One if by land, two if by sea. He was choosing two. Going to Tarshish. Running from the Lord. And should you even know nothing about the geography of what was taking place, you can see here in verse 3 how clear it is that he was attempting to flee from the Lord as far as he could. Two times in verse 3, it said that he was fleeing to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. I mean, he was trying to flee away from God. Now, we know that that's ridiculous to try, right? You cannot flee from God. Jonah knew that it was impossible to flee from God. He lived around 750 years before the birth of Christ. Some 200 years before that, David lived. David wrote Psalm 139, which Jonah certainly knew as a prophet. Um, probably read these things. These documents were compiled. Psalm 139, David penned. Where can I go from your spirit and where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, if I go from the east to the west, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Jonah knew those words. Of course you can't flee from God. But sin clouds are thinking. Isn't that true? Sin clouds are thinking. Have you ever sinned in secret? Have you ever gone to a place where you thought no one was looking and sinned? Thinking that nobody saw you? I know I have. I've done this. I've cursed up a storm in the silence when no one else is around. I know I've made plans, efforts to do things behind closed doors that no one can see. I've done that. I think most of you have too. It's just how we are. And, and I say, why would you do that? Don't you know that God is there? Well, here it is. God, sin clouds are thinking. But it's sin clouds are thinking. And Jonah's sin was that he didn't love the mercy of God. He would choose to flee rather than to follow after God's plan of mercy. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 2, we, we see why it is that Jonah fled. He, I mean, we, we might think, if chapter 4, verse 2 wasn't here, we might think, oh, I'm not going to Nineveh. They're going to skin me alive when I get there. Oh, I'm going to be made one of these pyramids outside the city gate. That was not at all why Jonah fled. Jonah fled because he didn't love mercy. Look what chapter 4, verse 2 says. Please, Lord, after Nineveh repented. Was this not 
what I said while I was still in my own country? So before he fled to Joppa to go out to Tarshish, he was saying this in his own country. He was saying what? He's saying, God, you're going to forgive him. I know you are. You are a gracious and compassionate God, right? Therefore, in order to forestall this mercy upon Nineveh, I fled to Tarshish. Because, look what he says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. The reason why Jonah didn't go to Nineveh was because he knew that God was gracious and compassionate. The reason he didn't go to Nineveh is because he knew that God was slow to anger and abundant loving kindness. And the reason he didn't go to Nineveh is because he knew that God is one who relents concerning calamity. He knew that God was a forgiving God. And he knew that God would have compassion upon Nineveh if he went and preached to them. But that was too much to bear, so he went to Tarshish. He fled. In other words, let me just, let me just boil it down. Jonah hated mercy when it would be given to his enemies. So he fled to Nineveh. He, he fled away from Nineveh that Nineveh might not taste the mercy of God. Not them, Lord! Me, yes. Not them. But God loves mercy. And the question Jonah asks of this, do you love mercy? has an implication upon our evangelism in our heart to share the message of God's love in Christ to a lost and dying world especially to your enemies. Well, let's see my second point here, God's pursuit. Because we're, we're going to see here God pursuing Jonah, and in reality God is pursuing mercy. Because Jonah knows full well the plan. Go and preach repentance, mercy given. Let me teach about myself, is what he says. As we go here through the rest of chapter 1, I think that you're going to be amazed, I hope you're amazed anyway, at the efforts the Lord goes through on His mission to bring Jonah to Nineveh. It shows you how much the Lord loves mercy. I mean, first expression here is in verses 4 and 5, that God sent the storm. That was a sign of mercy. Verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. It's, it's like He picked it up and He threw this, right? He's, he's stirring it up. He, he's, he's got the hand on the mixture and he's stirring up this storm. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was a, about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hole of the ship laying down and fell asleep. See, it's obvious that God is the one who brought the storm. It speaks there about how the Lord hurled the storm on the sea. See, God is sovereign over the weather. Psalm 135, verse 7 says, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from His treasuries. So God reached back into His treasuries. He said, let's put a wind here on the sea. And He put a wind here on the sea. As the wind was going on the sea, the storm was stirring up. And it wasn't just a, a storm. This was a, a storm. The sailors became afraid. These sailors are experienced mariners. They know a storm from a storm. And when they saw that it was a storm, they were taking the cargo and throwing it into the sea so the ship would be light and more seaworthy and less suspect to being submerged, being baptized. Listen, you don't jettison the cargo unless you're convinced the ship is going under without it. That's your money. That's your livelihood. 
And these sailors were scared enough that they were throwing that, but they were also scared enough that they were praying. If you look there in verse 5, every man prayed to his God. Maybe one of our gods will be strong enough to help us. Maybe one of our gods, will you help us? Right, and they all, you know, from uh, these, these sailors, we don't know exactly where they are. Some think that they are Phoenician sailors, right, from uh, off the southern coast of Spain, experienced mariners that would have been involved in polytheism. They would have had local gods like Hinduism, certainly stuff. Everyone had their own little god, and everyone trying to pray that God would help them. But the one man who had a god who could help them was sleeping, as verse 6 says. As verse 5 says, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 5. He was sleeping in the ship. The captain approached him, verse 6. He said, how is it you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so we will not perish. Not only did God send the storm, God also sent a preacher to Nineveh, to uh, Jonah. He's a preacher, this captain was. He's probably a, a preacher like on the children's notes. Real angry guy. How's it you're sleeping? What a great question. The storm was casting the ship high and low. It was going to and fro. And how Jonah could sleep in the storm... I don't know. Maybe he was wiped out. Maybe, maybe he was drunk. But I, I think, I, I think that uh, Jonah didn't really care if he died or not. And we saw that in chapter three. Later, we're going to see. Hey, throw me overboard! I'd rather die than to go to Nineveh. And, and I think that in many ways he was trying, even on the ship, to flee from the Lord. It says that he went down into the hold of the ship laying down and fall asleep. Maybe he was there among the cargo. So as the people are throwing the cargo out, they're like, hey, we got someone here. Who is this guy? And they talked to the captain. The captain then approached him. And, and I love these convicting words. The captain says, says get up, call on your God. Okay? Get up, call. Arise, cry. Do those words sound familiar at all? Those were the exact words that God had told Jonah in chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to the name of the great city, and cry against it. Get up, arise. In Hebrew, they're the exact same words. I'm not sure why they're translated differently, but they both say they get up and then call out or cry out against it. And I believe that it's more than a coincidence. Although totally unbeknownst to the captain, what the captain was saying, I don't think that it was lost on Jonah think that Jonah heard the words of the Lord. You know, maybe it was one of those things where you ever been in a, in a deep sleep and then just, kind of just before you wake up, you, something's happening, but, but it's incorporated into your dreams and then you get up and you... Have you ever had that before happen? This may have happened to Jonah. He's sleeping there, rehearsing God's call. Arise, cry against Nineveh. Arise, cry. And here he says, arise, cry. Arise, cry. He's like, whoa, whoa. And it's the captain. It's a preacher representing the voice of God. To Jonah. I think it's a demonstration of God's sovereignty. A demonstration of how far God went to pursue mercy upon Nineveh. Well, verse 7, we see another example of God's exerting His sovereignty. Not only did He send a storm and send a preacher, He also controlled the lot. The, the mates were up, up on deck. Jonah's down below. The captain's having this. And they're saying, we've got to figure out something about this. And so they decided to cast lots. Now, we don't know exactly how they cast lots. They could have done so in different ways. They could have drawn straws. They could have, you know, the one the shortest straw, he's the one. They could have um, taken some marked stones, you know, everyone had a stone in there for their own name and, and picked them out and said, okay, this is who it is. They could have done that. They could have manipulated some sticks in some way. They could have thrown some rocks. We don't know. But we do know this, that the lot fell on Jonah. Took some random things, 
and the lot fell on Jonah. And again, like the rising of the storm, like the words of the captain, this is no accident. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so God, I believe, was communicating to these sailors, telling them, Jonah's your man. You want to know who the storm is being caused? Jonah's your man. And so in verse 8, they confront him. And, and I think this dialogue from verse 8 to 14 is God pursuing mercy because God is exposing the sin of Jonah. Just, just conversation after conversation, little after little, the, the sin of Jonah is being exposed more and more and more and more. And God's ready and merciful. He would just turn and repent, but he never did. Verse 8, we see the sailors having identified Jonah was the one. Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? That's the first question. Who's done this thing? Then they look at him, and he's a little bit different than a lot of other people, I think. I mean, he's from Israel. Maybe his dress was different. Maybe his uh, facial features were different. <laughs> and then I think they were a little confused. They said, well, what, what's your occupation? Why are you dressed up like that? And from what country are you? Because you're not from any country we know. We're not really from around here. We don't know your country. Where do you come from? What are your people? Asking five bing, 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 bing questions. And his answer comes in verse 9. And, they got, and with all these questions, they're looking. Okay, if he's the man, something's up with him that we might learn to figure out what's going on. And then in verse 9, he answers all the questions. He says, I'm a Hebrew, so I'm an Israelite. I come from the people of God's people, from the, the Hebrew people. Uh, I serve the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. <laughs> Jonah said it straight. He knew the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Certainly, the creator of the sea was able to calm the sea, right? And so they said, ah, that's it. And I, I can imagine one sailor over here, here saying, yeah, I'm, I'm the God, my God I, I worship is the God of plants. And the God of plants isn't going to help me now. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Or someone saying, I, my God is the fertility God. I like that God, but that God's not a lot of help now. And then Jonah says, my God is the Lord God of heaven who made the earth and sea. <laughs> Your God can help us. That is for sure. But they, they didn't say so in a cavalier way. When they connected the storm and Jonah and his God, verse 10 says that sailors became extremely frightened. They were very scared. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So there was more dialogue that's not here, obviously, in verse 9. This isn't exactly the only thing he said. He probably explained that he was a prophet. He probably explained, I was sitting there one day and the, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, arise, go to Nineveh. And I said, that's an awful city. I'm not going to go there, so I'm going to flee. And I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And they said, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And he was turning away. He said, that's why he boarded the ship. That's why he headed to Tarshish. That's why he's sleeping in the hole of the ship to get away from the Lord. That's why the storm came upon them. It was all because of Jonah. And upon hearing these words, these sailors were extremely frightened. Now in verse 5, it said that they were afraid of the storm. But now their fears were magnified. They were extremely frightened. Literally, the Hebrew reads, then the men feared a great fear. They're afraid of Jonah and his God. And how ironic is it here that Jonah, who claimed to fear the Lord, in verse 9, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven. <laughs> it was just words. 
words. Because who feared the God of heaven? These sailors did. They were fearing the Lord greatly. In fact, we'll see later in verse 16 that they'll fear the Lord greatly. But here, they're, they're fearing because they're connecting things. And you know what? Let me just put it aside. It is often the case that, that people who know the truth, even preachers and pastors, who turn away from the truth are the most irreverent people in the world. They may profess reverence, but say, turn from him. They're like, I've tasted what it is to be in God's presence. I don't fear him anymore. And they go away. But oftentimes, infidels like it is here don't know are very terrified of the Lord. They, they're terrifying in, in ignorance. But that's who these people were. They, they were scared and they wanted a plan. And so verse 11 came to be a plan. Well, how, how can we appease this God? What can we do? What should we do to you? It says here in verse 11, that the sea may become calm for us. For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. So this conversation coming about. The, the storm isn't like, well, there's, yep, I see a clearing over there. I think it's blowing this way. I think it's going to be better. No, it's, it's like, ooh, it's darker. It's darker in the weather. It's coming worse. And, and they're going higher than ever before. They're tossing to and fro. And, and this conversation is probably happening among screams, among the, the rain pelting down. It's loud. And they're talking, what should we do? Jonah should have realized at this point that the fear of these people... Really, listen to what he said. He said, I'm fleeing from the Lord. He should have brought him back to repentance. Jonah should have said, I tell you what, you guys can't do anything, but let me get over here. Let me get on my knees and let me pray to the Lord. And say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I've, I've sinned. Heaven in your sight. Let, I'll go to Nineveh. He didn't do that. Look, he didn't do that at all. His sin was being exposed. He's being pressed to do something. Jonah wasn't praying to God. When the summons was, hey, everyone's praying to their God. Was Jonah praying to his God? He wasn't. Now his sin's being exposed. He's being known. He's being pressed by the sailors to do something. Jonah even knew in his heart that God was a gracious and compassionate God and one who relents concerning calamity. He knew that if he would repent, God would relent concerning the calamity and the storm would stop. But instead... Jonah said, verse 12. And, and I don't know the emotion of how he said this. Maybe it was stoically. Maybe it was quite, I don't know. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. Like, he's figured out this God thing. He just knows if, if, if he gets off this ship, God's going to make everything right. It's amazing here is Jonah's willing to die rather than repent. <laughs> He'd rather be thrown into the sea and drowned than confess his sins and return to Nineveh and preach to them. He's a hard-hearted missionary refusing to accept his call to missions. Rather, I just want to die. I don't want to do what God says. Maybe that word even comes convicting you, some of you. says, yeah, I'd rather die than to do what God says. I hope you see the folly of Jonah here because we can be just as foolish we turn away from the Lord making bad choices it's a bad choice to choose to die rather than repent. You know, and there are some times, especially young people, you can make some bad choices in your life that you will come and later regret. And you're like, oh, why did I do that? And you're going to feel like you've died rather than repent now and, and walk in the ways of God. is always a better way. Well, the reaction of the sailors further exposed Jonah's sin. Because they respond godly to these things. 
They refused to throw Jonah in the water. Verse 13, However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So think about it for a moment here. Suppose things are switched. Suppose Jonah wasn't a prophet. Suppose Jonah was a sailor. And suppose rather than um, him being the passenger on the ship, there was a Ninevite being a passenger on the ship who was running from his god Nimrod or something. And there's a big storm on the sea. And this Ninevite, this wicked Ninevite said, Oh, it's because of me. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And Jonah's the captain. What do you think Jonah would have done? (laughs) Ninevite into the sea? All right, here you go. But these pagan sailors wouldn't do that. They were unwilling to do that to Jonah. Instead, they attempted to row. Now, we don't know what kind of ship they had, but they're trying to row. Maybe they had four people, maybe they had six people trying to row this ship to shore. And and, uh, it's interesting here. Even the storm, it says, is even stormier against them. You you, you get the sense that uh, the storm was bad to begin with, but it's blowing even harder now, and it's against them. They're trying to come back east to the land, and God's just saying, nope, and he's blowing it against them. You know, it's almost like pers- it's the storm is going against them. God is blowing west. Go west. Go west, young man, and pushing them west. And they're trying to row, and she says, you can't, you can't row against We're rowing contest, guys? I don't think so, and he's pushing against them. And again, it's God pursuing mercy. Because he wants Jonah to see his sin to deal with his sin. So he get up and go back to the Ninevites. And then again, these ungodly sailors do a, a very godly thing. Verse 14, they pray. They call on the Lord. They said, we earnestly pray, O Lord. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not hold innocent blood against us. For you, Lord, have done as you've pleased. We, we see these, first these sailors, they're trying to call their own gods, verse 5 says. But now they realize it's the Lord Jehovah who brought the storm upon them. Now they're saying, oh, if that's the God, well, let's pray to Him. So they're praying upon to Jehovah. Even it says, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is Jehovah. That is His name. That's His personal name. It's not just a generic God. They're calling to the right God. And maybe they knew something about the Lord. I mean, God's fame had been, been renowned to all the nations. Maybe they heard a little bit about the Exodus and the plagues. Kind of vaguely remember hearing something about that, perhaps. Maybe they had heard something about the dynasty of King David. Or maybe the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was a little before Jonah. Elisha was just a touch before Jonah. Maybe they knew about him. The current news. Things about these prophets. But I don't, I don't think they heard much. They knew a little bit. And yet, what little they knew, they used. And they're praying the Lord in faith, believing that He is the one who caused the storm to come upon them. I love the elements of their prayer. First of all, they plead for mercy. Don't let us perish, Lord, please. Listen, we're going to throw this guy overboard, but please, don't hold us accountable. It was his idea. He's accepting full responsibility. Please don't put it upon us. We're... We're desperate, Lord. We have nowhere else to turn. Be merciful to us. That's what he's saying, so we're going to do this, right? Don't let us perish on account of this man's life. Don't put innocent blood. We're innocent in doing this because that's what he's asking us to do anyway. But not only is your prayer a plea for mercy, their prayer is also an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of the Lord over all circumstances. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. God, whatever you want to do, you just did it. Whatever you plead, you just did it. They, they may as well quote it from Psalm 
115 verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God, You've done whatever You please. You've brought the storm upon us. You've directed our lots. You're the one who's in charge of these things, God. They could have quoted from Psalm 135 verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in the deeps. They could have quoted from those things, but I don't think they knew the Scriptures well enough to even quote from them. But they believed in the sovereignty of God, not because they read it someplace, but because they experienced it. And they experienced it in their heart. And old Jonah at this point should have known better. He should have repented, but he was willing to be drowned instead. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Here we see another display of God's sovereign hand. He sent the storm. He sent the preacher. He controlled the lot. In His mercy, He exposed Jonah's sin. Also, He calmed the sea. He started the storm, calmed the storm. The sea, which was becoming more and more stormy, suddenly stopped. (laughs) And I think that everyone understood what happened. I think it was cause and effect. They threw Jonah in and... Calm. Maybe when the storm was raging, it was loud outside. Maybe some people were inside. They didn't understand that man was overboard. And they threw him overboard and it stopped. And maybe they came up and said, what happened? And they said, we threw Jonah overboard and it stopped. They clearly knew that it was God who stopped the storm. They connected it, those two things together. And it was certainly enough for the sailors to believe. They said in verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly. In verse 5, they became afraid. In verse 10, they became increasingly afraid. And now, verse 16, they feared the Lord greatly. This this storm had put a healthy fear in their life. Confession was increasing that. But now, seeing the connection with their own eyes that God is able to calm the storm, the ultimate fear was in their hearts, the fear of the Lord. That which Jonah professed but lacked, now these sailors have. And these sailors offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now you look at this and we don't know if their faith here was genuine. We don't know whether it was all superstitious. We don't know. But there, there was a right response from these men. As, as at least they said, wow, God, you are really the God. We just know about appeasement. We will, we will sacrifice to you. We will make vows to you. And I am sure the next storm that came upon the sea when they were out there, they were crying to Jehovah. And maybe they went back home. Maybe they'd find out about more about Jehovah. Maybe they'd find out He was a merciful God. Who knows? Jonah may well have witnessed this calm of the storm. He was thrown in the sea. And if you're thrown into a raging sea, you'll probably drown pretty fast because the waves will come over you. But, but if you're in a calm sea, your drowning comes a little slower because you just got to wait till you fatigue and can't tread water any longer. So if Jonah could swim, he's probably out there trying to stay above it and he sees the smoke going up from the incense or from the sacrifice of their offering, praying to the Lord and whatever. And he, he's there and Jonah's watching this. Anything he saw, though, was short-lived because verse 17 comes the juicy part now. The Lord appointed a great fish. Literally, juicy part, you know. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now we certainly will talk about more about this verse next week. Uh, in fact, we will start here next week because Jesus quotes this verse 
It's an adulterous generation searching for a sign, and Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Just as he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so also the Son of God will be in the earth three days and three nights as well. Correlates those two, but we'll see next week in chapter 2, it really comes together when we find out salvation is from the Lord, and we find out chapter 2, verse 10, he's vomited up onto the sea in salvation. But I want you to see this, that the swallowing of the fish is another demonstration of God pursuing mercy. God sent the fish. Look what it says here in verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. It's not like God saw Jonah in the, in the sea and said, Oh, good. Now, now we can do something. Now we can get another ship going by. Oh, oh, oh where did it happen? That's not how it happened. It's that God summoned this fish. He appointed this fish and it came and it swallowed Jonah. Now, there's all these questions about the type of the fish, whether it was this big sperm whale, you know, trying to explain how somebody could actually be inside the stomach of the fish. Maybe they found somebody who was in the stomach of a fish and lived for a long time. And, you know, they, they tried. But the point is here, though, it's miraculous. The chapter's been all about the miraculous hand of God. Is not the fish miraculous? And if you explain it away, then in some sense you may have lost the very point of what God is trying to get a point. He's trying to get the point to us that God is the one who's pursuing Jonah. And that in pursuing Jonah, he's the one that loves mercy, sending Jonah to Nineveh. And the fish here is actually Jonah's salvation. That's what it is. This is God is saving Jonah through the means of a fish. Jonah was headed to death by drowning. But God saved him by the fish. He spent three days and three nights on the red-eye swim back to the shores of Israel so that he could get there and start back on his way to Nineveh where it is he should have been going. His first preservation is what this was. And again, I want to make the point about how God pursued Jonah because God loved mercy. God had a heart for the Ninevites and wanted to send Jonah to them and God would do whatever it took to turn his heart around. And we'll see in chapter 3, verse 1, that well, his heart was somewhat turned. At least he was willing to go. But my question to you, is the theme of Jonah, do you love mercy? I want you to think about your greatest enemy. Who's your greatest enemy? Do you have a heart to share Christ with them, to see them turn, to see them come? I'm not talking about even someone in your family. I'm talking, I'm talking about someone who has opposed you and resisted you. Do you have a heart? Maybe praying for them is hard. Do you have a heart to pray for them? That God would help them and be merciful? Because Jonah's going to these Ninevites. And the example of Jonah ought to be an encouragement to us. I want to close with one more story. A few weeks ago, several of us men from Rock Valley Bible Church went up to Minneapolis to the Desiring God Pastors Conference up there. And uh, we saw a man named Michael O, who was a missionary from Korea to Japan. And uh, I guess I was just encouraged by his example because Michael O is a modern-day Jonah. I just want to bring you into context about what it might mean to be a modern-day Jonah. Now, for us, you know, it means with our enemies here, but even he is a missionary in Japan. You might not think much about this, but... As he said in his talk, and I'm taking my notes almost straight from his talk, he said he's Korean, 
However, he was born at the time under the, the Japanese imperial government, which controlled uh, Korea from when his dad was born. And so his dad, even though he had a Korean name, was forbidden to use that Korean name, was forbidden to speak Korean, and would be beaten if he did. Now his son Michael serves a missionary to the people who his father had been taught to hate. Because they domineered over him. They were like the Assyrians, constant pressure. No, Japan, Japan, Japan. And Korea hated it. And they wanted to get out from that. It wasn't until World War II they got out from it. But there's good reason, humanly, for him to hate the Japanese. We know of the horror of the Holocaust. Right? Six million Jews killed, gas chambers ruthlessly by the Nazis. <clears throat> 20 million Russians but one thing we've never heard of, or we don't hear about, maybe you have, is the Holocaust that took place upon Koreans and the Chinese and other Asians. Did you know the Japanese killed 30 million Asians? It was a Holocaust in Asia. No one seems to notice. Japanese scientists tested chemical, biological weapons like bubonic plague, anthrax on human victims. Oh, here's a Korean? Let's pull him into laboratory. Let's give him bubonic plague. Let's look how that looks. Let's, anthrax. How does that really work? Let's give him anthrax and watch him. Human vivisection. Cutting people alive was performed by these people. Body parts cut off. Women impregnated. Belly slates open. So you can look at the babies. Nazi scientists who weren't like the most... Um, gentle people in the world, when they visited the Japanese medical experimentation facilities, they vomited at the horror of what they saw. So bad were the Japanese. Korean women taken as girls, sex slaves, known as comfort women. All of these medical sexual atrocities was a racist ideology that sought to subdue, civilize, and subject lesser races and people. And... and, and um, what makes it worse for Michael Lowe, he said that the, the Japanese leaders today, none of them admit any fault of what took place. So it's like still burned deep within them of their arrogance. And so the question might be rightly asked of Michael Lowe, why are you as a Korean a missionary to Japan? And you know what he said? Jesus says, love your enemies. And that's what he's doing. He's pursuing his enemies. And, and you hear him talk, he's got a huge heart for them. He says that they are a nation that's got lots of things on the outside, a lot of politeness, but they are dark and they are a people, a nation who's desperately lost without Christ. And so he's gone to them and proclaiming the gospel to the people. They're in a hard mission field to enemies. But Michael O has the heart that Jonah had. And you may not be a missionary some far off place where your enemies are. But you've got to have the same heart that Michael Lowe has. You've got to have the same heart of God. Do you love mercy? Do you have a heart that just beats for mercy? That's the message of Jonah. And I hope that we catch it here. Our, our lives would be vivid and burning with the message of God's mercy to sinners. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that these words would, would touch our hearts, that we would see people who they are, 
lost and dead in their sins. And apart from Christ, destined to perish. I pray, Lord, right now that You'd bring to mind people, faces of those who we need in our hearts to pray for, first of all. And then be willing to go towards, be willing to talk to, and be willing to rejoice when and if you show mercy to them. I pray at Rock Valley Bible Church, Lord, that we would be a, a church that, that loves mercy, is not judgmental and harsh and critical and condemning how many things there are of that. But I pray we would catch your heart and realize that those who repent, um, there's a storehouse of mercy waiting for them. Thank you for Jesus who knew no sin but became sin for us, became the path, how you can be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in, in, in Jesus. Cause us to reflect much upon the gospel, much upon Christ, so we might realize the mercy you've given to us. We might realize the debts that have been forgiven us, that we might easily forgive the debts of others. Teach us to love you much. We might love others much. So help us this day, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before you are dismissed, um, we just have a potluck that's going to take place afterwards. You're visiting with us. We'd love to have you stay. If you said, oh, I didn't bring any food, well, stay with us anyway. We've got enough.